Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Michael King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. Wait, who wrote this? We're talking about Martin Luther King, not Michael. No, we're actually talking about Michael King, who would later become Martin Luther King Jr. as we all know him today. And hey, listen, if you think that Bob has another brother that's filling in for Will today. That's not the case. It's me, Will. I just have some sinus funk going on, uh, and so I sound even worse than usual. So please forgive me, but the show must go on, and here we are. Uh, But I apologize in advance. So back to Michael King, uh, eventually to become Martin Luther King Jr. His father, the senior king, went on a trip to numerous historically relevant places in the summer of 1934. And one of those places was Berlin. He was there for the Baptist World Alliance meeting. This is a year after Hitler became chancellor, so there's a lot going on in the world. The trip had a huge impact on King, and not long after his return to Georgia, he changed his and his son's name from Mike King to Martin Luther King. Although scholars say there's no definitive account of why the senior king changed his name, uh, Martin Luther Jr. offered a plausible explanation during the last sermon he ever gave. He said, I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat, and I would watch Martin Luther as he tacks his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg. And thus, both Mike Kings became Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr., Did you know that, Bob? I don't think so. I know as a kid, and for most of my life, I was very confused about there being a Martin Luther and a Martin Luther King, and but now it all makes sense. There you go. And this name change, presumably honoring the father of the Protestant Reformation, makes a lot of sense, given that Martin Sr.'s father began the family's long tenure as pastors of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta which both Martins would eventually serve there as pastors as well. I heard Martin Luther King Jr. in an interview one time say that uh, they were listed as co-pastors at one time, but Martin Luther King Sr. made it clear to anybody that would listen that he was the head pastor. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, we've got a dad, so I can understand that. Martin Luther King Jr. attended segregated public schools in Georgia. Graduating from high school at the age of 15, He received a B.A. degree in 1948 from Morehouse College, which was his father and grandfather's alma mater. After three years of theological study at Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, where he was elected president of a predominantly white senior class, 
he was awarded the BD in 1951. You know what that stands for, Bob? Bachelors of Divinity? You are smart. And so with a fellowship won at Crozer, he enrolled in graduate studies at Boston University, completing his residence for the doctorate degree in 1953 and receiving the degree in 1955. That wasn't the only thing he got while he was there. While he was in Boston, he also met Coretta Scott, a brilliant young woman, and they had two sons and two daughters together. In 1954, Dr. King became pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He had always been a strong worker for civil rights, and by this time, he was also a member of the executive committee of the NAACP. In December of 1955, he led the first great nonviolent demonstration in support of civil rights of contemporary times in the United States, the bus boycott. The boycott lasted 382 days. On November 20th, 1956, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld a lower court's ruling that declared the laws requiring segregation on buses were unconstitutional. Now, during the boycott, Dr. King was arrested, his home was bombed, and he was subjected to personal abuse. But King emerged as a prominent national leader of the civil rights movement, while also solidifying his commitment to nonviolent resistance. King's approach remained a hallmark of the civil rights movement throughout the 1960s. In 1957, he was elected president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This is an organization formed to provide a new leadership for the now up-and-coming civil rights movement. The ideals for this organization he took from Christianity, its operational techniques he borrowed from Gandhi. And in 1958, in the shoe section of a Harlem department store, folks came to meet the 29-year-old preacher who sat in a roped-off section of Bloomstein's department store. Uh, He was autographing copies of Stride Toward Freedom, a memoir he had written about the year-long Montgomery bus boycott that we just talked about. The civil rights leader was signing a book when a 42-year-old woman wearing a sequined cat's-eye glasses and a stylish suit slipped past the 20 people in line and approached him. Are you Martin Luther King, she asked with a southern drawl. Yes, he replied. Without warning, the woman leaned over the desk and plunged a seven-inch penknife into King's chest with such force that it snapped the handle. Bystanders restrained the woman, her name was Isola Ware Curry, until she could be arrested. And she would yell out, I've been after him for six years, I'm glad I'd done it. Amid the chaos and screaming, King remained conscious and calm as blood spread out across his white cotton shirt. He even calmed those around him, saying, That's all right. Everything's going to be all right. He counseled frantic supporters who debated whether to pull out the penknife. No, 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 no. Please, please tell me they didn't do that. (laughs) Bob, for those at home who may be less medically inclined, uh, why would they not want to do that? Oh, because when something is like a knife is in your body, it's bad, you know, you can bleed and you can pop lungs and whatnot, but there's a strong possibility that if like the knife is actually blocking off some of that blood from just spurting out the hole you'd leave behind when you take it out. You know, another thing is, for goodness sake, if someone were to think it's a good idea to pull this knife out and then someone tells them, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Do not put it back in uh, ever. It's sad that you have to say that, but I understand. You know, I, I I wondered if things are the same. You know, it's been a long time since I had my EMT training. Shout out Doug and Judy. Uh, my recollection from this part of the class was 
essentially, if there's anything that's stuck in somebody that shouldn't be there, you basically stabilize it as best you can and leave it alone until you get to, uh, you know. Until you can get to the hospital and the doctors can get some imaging done and see exactly what it's affecting and or where it's located. So the surgeon can get in there and do what needs to be done. But yeah, whether it's a pen knife, a pencil or a guardrail, you got to figure out how to get that into the hospital so they can see what's going on. Exactly. And thankfully, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s case, Nobody pulled this thing out, and for good reason, we're thankful, because this steel tip of the blade rested just a fraction of an inch from King's aorta. That's the main artery carrying blood from the heart to the rest of his body. So like Bob said, you know, if they had messed with that thing, they could have very easily nicked that, and he would have likely bled out and died. But with the knife still lodged in his sternum, King was carried in his chair to an ambulance and rushed to Harlem Hospital. There he received a shock when he again came face to face with his attacker who had been brought there by police for identification. Holy cow. My response to that would have been, get that heifer out of here. He was a well-spoken man and much kinder than I. Why did she go after him in the first place? I mean, six years. I just have to say, in least surprising news ever, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, a kinder, more subtler gentleman than Bob. But that's a great that's a great question. So it quickly became clear that that Curry, a Georgia-born sharecropper's daughter who had been concealing a loaded pistol in her bra, was mentally ill. During her police interrogation, she gave incoherent and conflicting statements and even referred to Dr. King as either Arthur King or Arthur Luther. Curry blamed him and the NAACP, which she accused of conspiring with communists for placing her under constant surveillance and conspiring to prevent her from holding a steady job. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You feel that way about uh, Zuckerberg. So, I mean, you know, I guess you and her have something in common. I can't believe you managed to relate this to Lizard Boy, but there you did it. <laughs> so, 10 days after the attack, Dr. King told the press, uh, crowded into his hospital room, that he bore no ill will toward Curry and that the attack only affirmed his dedication to nonviolence. He said, quote, a climate of hatred and bitterness so permeates areas of our nation that inevitably deeds of extreme violence must erupt. The experience of these last few days has deepened my faith in the relevance of the spirit of nonviolence. If necessary, social change is peacefully to take place. Um, not to kick you or anything, but I think when he said it, it sounded a lot more eloquent. Oh, no doubt. I mean, one, I'm sick. And two, even on my best day, uh, I'm like maybe a, a fraction of what uh, Dr. King had in oratory skills. So uh, sorry, guys. Fun fact. Did you know that when he was at, uh, at Crozer, he got a C in public speaking? <laughs> I did not know that. That's I wonder who his professor was. There seems to be some debate about whether it was on one paper, I mean, one assignment or the entire class. But I think that's a, a testament for everybody about uh, what people say about you versus what you can do with it. Martin Luther King Jr. got a C in public speaking, and he's one of the best public speakers in the entire world of all time. Yeah, he's up there, man. I, I, I could listen to him just like read the phone book and it would sound good. Right. And more proof. Grades ain't a thing. <laughs> yeah, C's get degrees. Let's not forget. Mm. So 
One of King's doctors noted that if he had even sneezed or coughed, the weapon would have penetrated his aorta. He was literally a sneeze away from death. And King himself recounted this near-death experience in his mountaintop speech, saying, I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream. He told the audience that if he had sneezed, he would have missed the Freedom Riders, the Selma to Montgomery March, the 1964 passage of the Civil Rights Act, and the March on Washington, in which he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. If I had sneezed, he said, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. Now, to summarize this 11-year period between 1957 and 1968, King traveled over 6 million miles and spoke over 2,500 times, appearing wherever there was injustice, uh, protest, and action. And meanwhile, he wrote five books as well as numerous articles. In these years, he led a massive protest in Birmingham, Alabama that caught the attention of the entire world providing what he called a a coalition of of conscience and inspiring his letter from a Birmingham jail. He planned the drives in Alabama for the registration of black voters. He directed the peaceful march on Washington, D.C. of 250,000 people to whom he delivered that I Have a Dream address. He conferred with President Kennedy, campaigned for Lyndon B. Johnson. He was arrested over 20 times, assaulted on at least four occasions, He was awarded five honorary degrees, was named Man of the Year by Time magazine in 1963, and at 35, Dr. King was the youngest man to have received the Nobel Peace Prize. When he was told that he'd been selected to receive that prize, he announced that the $54,123 in prize money would be donated to support the civil rights movement. Normally, I'd want to tell you that you've kind of gotten out of the lane here and that this is a true crime podcast or podcast, not podcast, and we need to get to the part with the crime. But Dr. King is someone I respect very much, and his life and accomplishments are really extraordinary. So I don't want to shortchange that part of the story, but are we getting to the crimey part soon? We are. And while that was a lot of background, it not only explains who Dr. King was, But also, I think it helps us to better understand the circumstances surrounding his murder. Yeah, uh, for the most part now, I think King is revered and respected and loved and appreciated. But I imagine things were kind of divisive for him in his time. You know, he wasn't universally popular at that point. So, yeah, I get it. All right. I think you left off somewhere in the mid 60s. Yep, and we're going to pick back up in the spring of 68. While preparing for a march on Washington, D.C. to lobby Congress, King and other SCLC members were asked to come to Memphis, Tennessee to support a sanitation workers' strike. Now, the strike had started in February after two sanitation workers, Eco Cole and Robert Walker, were crushed to death in a garbage compactor. I'm just going to stop there for a second. Could you imagine when I wrote that? I, like, how horrible is that? 
I don't want to be crushed. I don't want to be in a trash compactor. And I definitely don't want to be crushed in a trash compactor. Yeah, they were crushed to death in this garbage compactor where they were taking shelter from the rain. And this wasn't the first time that sanitation workers had died this way, but these deaths were a breaking point and prompted more than 1,300 black men in the Memphis Department of Public Works to demand higher wages, time and a half overtime, dues checkoffs, safety measures, and pay for uh, the rainy days when they were told to go home. Things that nowadays I think we all pretty much just assume to be standard. The mayor of Memphis, this guy named Henry Loeb, had previously overseen the sanitation department and now was the mayor. And as he, at the time that he had overseen the sanitation department, these practices were being challenged. So as you can imagine, he had no interest in changing anything. I mean, he'd overseen the stuff that they were um, upset about. Uh, with the city refusing to negotiate or to budge on any of this stuff, most of the workers went on strike on February 12th, 1968. By February 15th, just three days later, the trash piling up throughout the city was beyond noticeable. Some reports even say there was uh, ten, over 10,000 tons of trash that was just sitting around needing to be uh, disposed of. Days in a city of trash piling up, I imagine that just smelled delicious. So Dr. King came to Memphis in mid-March and praised the workers for striking. He spoke to a crowd of 25,000 and promised to come back at the end of the month. A snowstorm uh, would delay his return by a few days, but on March 28th, he helped lead a march in support of the striking workers. Turmoil continued in the city, and on the night of April 3rd, King gave a speech at the Mason Temple Church. It is well known as the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech, and it was the last speech Dr. King would ever give. The clip of him speaking at the beginning of our episode is taken from that speech. And his words eerily foreshadowed his untimely death that would take place less than 24 hours after he spoke them. That gets us to April 4th, 1968. From the broadcasts in Memphis and the morning newspaper, uh, a paper called The Commercial Appeal, a man named James Earl Ray discovered that Dr. King was staying at the Lorraine Motel in room 306. Ray was already in Memphis staying at another hotel, and he found this place called Bessie Brewer's Rooming House. It was adjacent to the Lorraine Motel. And he decided he was going to switch to go stay there. Ray checked into the Bessie Brewer's around 3.30 that afternoon. And he rented room 8 under the name John Willard. But asked to change to room 5B, which overlooked the Lorraine Motel. The bathroom window had the best direct line of sight to room 306 at the Lorraine. In fact, it was pretty, you know, clear shot over there. Okay, what was this Ray fella's deal? I, what, where did he come from? What, like, what was his background? Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about James Earl Ray. I mean, dude's got three first names, so he should be a serial killer, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you that he's not. Uh, we don't have any proof of that, but you're right that once you, you know, James Earl Ray sounds an awful lot like a serial killer name to me. Uh, so he was born on March 10th, 1928 in Alton, Illinois. His family moved a few miles down the road to Bowling Green, Missouri in 1930, and five years later, they moved to Ewing, where Ray went to school. At age 16, he moved back to Alton, where he lived with his grandmother. He worked in the dye room of the International Shoe Tannery in nearby East Hartford, Illinois. Now, a little side note here, my lawyer friends heard me say International Shoe and shivered with flashbacks from the first year of law school. Uh... Ray was laid off in December 1945, and a little over a month later, 
he enlisted in the army. He was stationed in West Germany, where he was charged with drunkenness and breaking arrest. Uh, Ray was discharged for ineptness and lack of adaptability for service in December of 1948. You couldn't get kicked out of the military in 1948. This is right after World War II, like a very scary time. Drunkenness and a lack of adaptability discharge? It sounds like a Dahmer thing, but seriously, 1948, you got kicked out of the army? You're messed up. Right. So the Dahmer connection is fascinating because I can even go further, right? After he was discharged, Ray moved back in with his grandmother in Alton when he returned home. Did you mix up your notes with the Dahmer case? Did you copy and paste the wrong thing? No, I think there must just be some prototype for, for these guys who are messed up in the head. I don't know. But after Ray was back home with grandma, he embarked on a life of odd jobs and jail sentences. He worked for the Dryden Rubber Company in Chicago until he was laid off in September of 49. And then he left to Los Angeles. On October 11th, he was arrested for robbing a cafe and was sentenced to 90 days imprisonment. After he got out of jail in L.A. in the spring of 1950, he traveled back to Illinois, where he worked until roughly like May of 52. During this time, he attempted to earn his high school diploma at night. But, you know, um, real work and actually studying is hard, so he, uh, he robbed a cab driver of $11.90 on May 6, 1952, and, and was convicted and found guilty of the robbery and got sent away to the state penitentiary at uh, Juliet and later at the state prison farm in Pontiac until his release in March of 1954. Then in March of 55, he broke into a post office in Kellersville, Illinois with an accomplice, and they stole 66 uh, postal money orders as well as a validating stamp and fled to Miami where, you know, all criminals like to go because beaches. And they were arrested, but but they were arrested in Missouri on the, on their return back. So he ended up pleading guilty to that, and in July of '55 was sentenced to 45 months at the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth. After he was paroled from Leavenworth in early 1959, he wasted no time robbing two grocery stores in St. Louis and one back in Alton during the summer and fall of 1959. He's eventually captured and tried for St. Louis robbery in. December 59, and then in March of 60, he began serving a 20-year sentence at the Missouri State Penitentiary. He attempted to escape in November of 61, and again in March of 66, but following the second attempt, he underwent a mental examination at the state hospital in Fulton and was determined capable of standing trial for the escape. On April 23, 1967, he successfully escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary. See, he just, you know, uh, if you try hard enough, eventually you will succeed, right? Yeah, I guess. Now, over the following 11 and a half month period, he traveled extensively in North America, spending time in Chicago, Montreal, Birmingham, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. All right. And that brings us right up to April of 1968 in Memphis, where Dr. King was staying at the Lorraine Motel. And I would just like to point out that I've seen pictures and video of that joint, and you're activists of today they ain't staying in no motel they're flying in in a jet hanging out in the penthouse um you know the ones fighting climate change but they're flying in their jet to give their speech <laughs> you, you bring up a good point that you know i think for us it's easy to sort of imagine this in today's world where you know there's security and you're kind of sequestered off at the ritz carlton or whatever 
And this is certainly not the case for Dr. King. Um, the, the Lorraine Motel is very much, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, like I, when I look at the video and the pictures and stuff, I think of, it's like your neighborhood, Howard Johnson, you're, you know, there's the balconies out on the, that come out of the rooms that are on the upper floors and it's very accessible. It's in the middle of everything. And, and it just kind of, you know, we've got this sanitation worker strike going on. So people are active they're out there you know, and him being there is a big deal. Like, and, and part of giving the background of all of his accomplishments and everything that he had done up to this point and, and been involved with was to sort of make that clear, right? It's not like he just shows up into town and nobody's paying attention or even only certain people. He shows up and everybody, like, this is a big deal. It's a very big deal. So he ain't staying in the presidential suite of the Hilton downtown or anything. He's in some off-brand Motel 6 like a regular person. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're right. We're back to April 1968 and uh, April 4th. And around 4 p.m. that day, Ray purchased a pair of binoculars at the York Arms Company for $41.55. And he went back to his room at Bessie Brewer's to watch for King. Now, Dr. King was sharing room 306 with an associate, Dr. Ralph Abernathy. Around 5.55 that evening, the two men exited their hotel room after getting ready for dinner. They were standing on the hotel's balcony with others on King's staff. Again, I mean, this is, there's a lot of people. It's fair to say King had an entourage. And then in addition to the entourage, there's people that are supporting him and are kind of following. And then there's the people who are against him and who hate him. And they're around too. It's not like, you know, everybody, like you said earlier, it's not like everybody, um, he was revered in the way that I think more commonly he is today. Back then, there were plenty of people who hated him. Right. Uh, unfortunately. And so, um, after emerging from his room, uh, King lingered on the balcony, talking to his driver, Solomon Jones in the courtyard below. They were preparing to make their way to attend uh, dinner at the home of a local minister, Reverend Billy Kyles. And then at 6 1 PM, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Want to know what happened next? Yes! Listen to the next episode. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.